Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. You know, if you wait until you feel like you're ready for that next adventure, that next job, or that next thing you want to try, if you wait till you feel like you're ready, sometimes you just wait and wait and wait and wait. You never take that next step. You never jump into it. But we want to be able to jump on the opportunities that God has for us. Amen? See, opportunities come wrapped up in all different kinds of packaging. You know, when the postman delivers something to your door, it can come wrapped in all kinds of different ways, right? Some, you know, plain brown wrapping, some the wrapping of the company logo. They come looking different ways. Some packages are just so attractive you want to open them. I got a package the other day. I ordered some uh, cabinet parts for this last job that I'm just about done with. I mean, this thing was horribly wrapped. It was, it was old Home Depot boxes taped together. It was horrible. It didn't. Nobody even wanted to open it. <laughs> and then it took forever to open because they taped everything to the inside because they literally just taped the cardboard around. It was a terrible box, a terrible packaging, right? But see, things come and they're wrapped up in different ways. You know, some very rarely will an opportunity come in just this perfect, beautiful package. You know what I mean? Looking pretty, pull here to unlock, you know, all expenses paid, never a struggle. It's the obvious thing to do. No, most of the time opportunities come, they look like problems or challenges, you know, challenges. And those are really easy to miss. When you have an opportunity coming into your life, that's a problem or a challenge because who is actually looking for a problem or a challenge, right? So it's very easy to miss those kinds of opportunities. But some of the best opportunities come in the form of the challenges that we're not actually looking for. Sometimes they come looking like work. Thomas Edison is the one who said, um, people, uh, most people miss opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work opportunity. But so don't be afraid to step out and take chances here and there. I mean, pray about it. Make sure it's the right thing. But you know, they talk about uh, motivational speakers talk about the paralysis of analysis. You've heard that, right? You can analyze something forever and you're paralyzed. You never step into it because you're always analyzing it again and again and again and again and again. And they're saying you need to stop that and actually go out and do something. So don't be afraid to take chances or work hard or learn a new skill or even step out before you feel like you're ready because you may be more ready than you know. Especially if it's ministry that God has called you to do because it's not really all about you anyway. It's about him. But you have to learn how to identify these opportunities because like I said, they're not usually just laying there you know, with big neon signs saying, opportunity here. You know, the ones, come on, the ones who come at you like that, they're usually somebody selling something, right? <laughs> Look, why wouldn't you want it? Look, everything you, you know, read the fine print. That's not, that's not what they're presenting. Uh, Winston Churchill said, a pessimist sees, pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity and an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. See, a lot of it depends on your attitude and your mindset, doesn't it? You know, why do some people just seem like they win, 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 win? A lot of it's just their mindset, their attitude. 
a lot of times people who seem like there's just problem after problem after problem, I'm not saying every time because there are attacks, but we can, we can bring things upon ourselves. We need to have the right attitude before God, amen? We need to be winners on the inside, always, regardless of our circumstances. God's made you a winner. The King James Bible uses a very interesting phrase in Ephesians 5.16. It says this, um, well, starting at verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. What does circumspectly mean? It's a, it's a, uh, in the English thinking, you know, circum, circum, looking around, speckly, like spectacles. You're looking around, you're watching your ways. You're walking circumspectly and not as fools, but as wise. Verse 16, redeeming the time redeeming the time because the days are evil. Then it says, do not then be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. But that phrase, redeeming the time, the NIV says, making the most of every opportunity. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And then the ESV, which is what I'm using today, it says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. See, God doesn't want us to be foolish, just wasting hours and days and weeks and years of our lives wondering what in the world the will of God is. This is the will of God, this book. We can read this book in the Holy Spirit and we can know what the will of God is. First of all, we need to know what the will of God is. And then where do I fit into the will of God? But it's not for us to be foolish and wandering around. We're supposed to know so that we can make the most of every opportunity. See, your time is your best opportunity. Time is a limited asset. Everybody has the same amount of time. It's just how do we choose to spend it? Who is it who said, I heard a preacher say it. I don't know who the original quote was, but life is like a nickel. You can spend it any way you want, but you can only spend it once. It's a limited asset. We want to make the best use of our time. Amen. Paul said to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Be ready. Be ready. Now, I know people who are ready to reprove, reprove, and rebuke. <laughs> you do too. <laughs> You've been rebuked probably by some people who are always ready to reprove and rebuke, right? But listen to the heart, listen to the spirit of what God's saying here. I, listen to how it says in the children's Bible. It says, uh, tell people what they need to do. Tell them when they're wrong and encourage them. It doesn't sound as bad as reprove and rebuke, does it? Reprove, tell them when they're wrong. Encourage them. The New International Reader's Version says, correct people's mistakes. Warn them. Encourage them by words of hope. Then it says, be very patient as you do these things. Teach them carefully. Say the heart of a teacher, but always be ready. Be ready to move. Be ready with a kind word. Be ready with a prayer. Be ready with a helping hand. That's why you need to live ready. Because, you know, even if your neighbor or your friend or your coworker, when they need help and they don't know God, they're not connected to God, you are connected to God, right? You need to live ready so that you can always connect them to God, right? Because you're connected to God. People will come to you trying to get to God. And Jesus is okay with that. God is okay with that. He says, I want to put my spirit on you. I want you to do the same things Jesus did. 
So they don't need to go to a temple somewhere. They don't need to make a pilgrimage to some holy place. They just need to get to you. And you can point them to God. So be ready to reprove, rebuke, <laughs> and exhort. Make the most of every opportunity. I want to talk to you today about Jesus um, when he fed the 5,000 in the book of John. I want you to picture this scenario with me. Jesus and the disciples, they're getting into these boats. They're heading across the lake. Okay. Now, crowds have been following Jesus and the disciples, just massive crowds. And they watch the boats and they see where he's going. And so they run around and they try to, they go to where he's going and they get there before he gets there. So when they get off the boat, boom, they're already hit with the crowd. This miracle is one of the few miracles that actually is recorded in all four Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke 9, and then what I'm reading from today is the book of John chapter 6, the first 14 verses. But putting all these accounts together, we can know a little bit of background of what's going on here. First, John the Baptist just died, and Jesus learned about his death, and Jesus wanted to take some time away. Secondly, just a chapter or two before, depending on which gospel you read, Jesus has sent out the 12. He sent them out two by two to heal the sick and to preach the gospel. And they went around healing and preaching. And so they'd just come back and they were telling Jesus what was going on. And Jesus wanted to get away. He wanted to take them to a place out in the alone, away from the crowd so that they could have some rest. Mark says it in uh, Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught the 12 coming back. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going that they had no leisure even to eat. So they were busy. They were busy. The crowds would not leave them alone. They were thronging them and they were just looking for a place to be alone and to rest. They were not looking for another opportunity to preach the gospel and to heal people. They just, the Luke said that they were going around, they just went through all the villages and they were healing everybody. They were not looking for another opportunity to heal or another opportunity to preach. They were looking for rest. They were looking for a break. But when they get off the boat, there's the crowd right in front of them. You know, there are certain circumstances in life that we need to resist. We need to fight. We need to stand on the word of God. We need to speak to it and we need to fight. But you know, more and more lately, I've been learning how to trust God and just to roll with things because it could be those very circumstances that are coming that I wasn't ready for, that maybe I'm even uncomfortable with are the very things that are setting me up to use me to advance the kingdom of God. Think about that. A song I didn't pick that Scaly picked that song, but that you meant what the enemy, what you took, what the enemy meant for you. Yeah, and you turn it for. I mean, that's that's what we're saying. What a perfect song to go with it. Um, they were not looking for another opportunity to preach and to heal. The disciples uh, were they were tired, they were weary, they just done all this, and they're ready for a break. But here's the thing. Ministry happens at inconvenient times. Oh, look at that. Ministry happens at inconvenient times. Preach the word. Be ready. Be ready to serve God in good times or bad times. Because it's not going to, you know what, when somebody comes to you and says, I need prayer because my kid's sick or whatever, it's probably not going to, I mean, it could be, but it very likely might not be like the day you get off of your three-day fast 
and you've been in church revival services and you just feel like all pumped up. It could be like after a hard day's work when you're exhausted and tired and all you wanna do is put your feet up and watch the news. Because Jesus and the disciples were looking for a break. They were looking for rest. And that's when people will come. Are you ready? Are you connected to God at those moments? You are, even if you don't feel like it. So be ready. Amen. You know, that's another reason I really like this church. Nobody has like an agenda that they're trying to push. Y'all are just so willing just to roll with whatever God's doing at the moment, you know? And we need to be. We're ready just to meet any need. Somebody would, could come up for prayer right now, and we'd just stop what we're doing. We would meet that need, wouldn't we? I think everybody in here is in, in agreement with that. And uh, I love that. I love that about Emmanuel. Because, you know, ministry is often messy. It's never picture perfect. It's not really made for TV. You know, I think, I think about um, when the, uh, the lunatic brought his son to Jesus and, and, you know, the demon hit him and he's valsing on the floor and Jesus is interviewing the father. Yeah, how long has he been like this? I mean, it's ugly. You know what I mean? It was an ugly situation. But then Jesus healed the boy and, and uh, raised him up. But ministry is not always happening at times that are convenient for us. You guys remember um, uh, Meshach and Bethany? <clears throat> you know, when he had that car accident those years ago, I wasn't even on staff or anything at the church. I just went here. But uh, they were kind of new and they didn't have everybody's phone number. So I got the call. It was in the middle of the afternoon. I'm at work. But I got the call. So I went down to the hospital. It was before COVID, you know. Man, Meshach should have been dead, if you remember. He flipped that car over, was hanging by his seatbelt. His head was hitting the roof. He was that close to being dead. And, and, and I, I mean, I got the call, so I went. It's not always convenient, the opportunities. And I went to the hospital. I met his family, and then it wasn't very long. Um, we got a hold of Pastor James and Michael. Everybody showed up. We went into his room and prayed. It was a good time because I'm telling you what, he walked out that night. They were, they were thinking he had head trauma, who knows, but by the time they were done, they, they let him go. Yeah, there was a time yeah. when I was uh, like super angry. Yeah. And my sister called out of nowhere. Wow. Asking for prayer. And I was in the mood to pray. But I yielded my I, I just yeah. surrendered, yield, yeah. and then God spoke unbelievably powerfully. Wow. Wow. It comes when you're not ready. And if you were waiting for you to feel ready, you wouldn't have had the words. Step back, let God do it. So look at me with John, uh, John chapter six, verse one. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, this is very important that he mentions the Passover here for two reasons. One, we know that Jesus' ministry, we say traditionally, it lasted approximately three, three and a half years. This is why we know that. The book of John records three different Passovers. And so we count the Passovers in John and we get some idea of how long Jesus' public ministry lasted. But John's mention of the Passover here is not just a marker of time. It's actually a theological marker. And I'll tell you why. The Passover is a celebration of what? The Exodus, escaping from Pharaoh through the sea and then being led for 40 years in the wilderness, right? That's what the Passover signifies. That's what it celebrates, right? So now it's Passover and the crowds are following somebody else into the wilderness. See what I'm saying? You see where John is going with this. Why did he set that up? 
You know, Moses said, you can read this in uh, Acts chapter three, verse 22. You can also read it in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like me from your brothers. You shall listen to whatever he tells you. See, so the people are waiting. They're waiting for this prophet to come. And John is saying it's Passover. The people are following him into the wilderness. He's about to give them bread, right, to eat, feeding the 5,000. And he's saying the prophet is coming. And John is giving us a, a, a signal here. It's Jesus. He's the prophet to come. So it's a theological marker. So verse four, it says, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, why aren't they over in the temple? Why are they following this man out into the wilderness? So lifting up his eyes then, seeing the large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are you going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse six, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And you've heard this said, when God asks a question, he's not looking for information, right? He's not, he's not having a trouble. Put that slide up. When God asks a question, he's not looking for information. What's he doing? He's helping you to understand what's in your heart. That's why he's asking the question. Do you remember Genesis 3? The Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? He said to Adam, where are you? When he called to Adam and said, where are you? He didn't need to know where he was. He didn't need to know his location. He knew where he was. What he wanted was he wanted Adam to know where Adam was. Not positionally, but relationally. And what did Adam say? I heard your voice and I was afraid. That was his answer. The very first time Adam, this is horrible. The very first time Adam experiences fear, it's fear of God. Adam used to walk with God. He was not afraid. He was unashamed. He walked with God, no sense of guilt. And now God says, where are you? He says, I heard your voice and I was afraid. And God helped Adam locate Adam. After Cain killed his brother, Abel, out of jealousy, remember that? Genesis 4, 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Okay, he already knew what happened, right? He's not looking for information. Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay, the very fact that God is asking you where he's at tells me that you have some responsibility for him, right? The very question locates you, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yeah. How about um, when, when uh, Moses was talking to God and he says, they won't believe me, Exodus 4 verses 1 and 2. They're not going to believe me or listen to my voice because they're going to say, the Lord didn't appear to you. And God asks him a question. Moses, what's that in your hand? And he says, a staff. Okay. God knew what was in his hand. But what God was saying was, look at the staff. Look, when I called you, I knew what you had. And I'm going to use what you already have to do what I've called you to do. See, the Lord knows who you are. He knows what you have. He knows your personality. He knows what you're capable of. And he said, what is it? What have you got? I'm going to use that to use you to do what I've called you to do. Isn't that good? So when God asks a question, he's just not looking for information. It's not like he doesn't know the answer. He said to Elijah when he was in the cave, what are you doing here, Elijah? And, and, and he already knew. Elijah just outran the, the chariots and he was tired and he was hiding and resting in a cave. 
And he said, what are you doing here? And Elijah just pours out his heart to him and just empties himself before God. And God, then God speaks to him and tells him about anointing the next king, anointing the next prophet. Elijah's ministry wasn't over in that cave. I love the one in Isaiah. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Okay, I mean, he just, Isaiah just has the vision. He sees the Lord, his glory filling the temple, the seraphim and the angels flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. I mean, he is just overwhelmed. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the Lord says, whom shall I send? And his heart just bursts out. Here I am, send me. He located him and he helped Isaiah locate Isaiah. So Jesus asked the question. Well, think about these. Think about these questions, Jesus' questions. Mark 8, 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Matthew 14, 31, why did you doubt? Hard questions, aren't they? Pointed questions, questions that go deeper than just, uh, you know, a superficial answer. So in verse uh, five and six, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Okay, Jesus already knew what he would do. He's testing him. Now, if Philip were smart, he would have given Ezekiel's answer. You remember Ezekiel's answer? When Jesus, God takes him and puts him in the middle of the valley with all the dry bones, right? Dry bones is a, a nice way of saying a bunch of dead bodies. So God takes you, puts you in a valley with a bunch of dead bodies and asks you a question. Can these bones live? You need to be very careful how you answer that question because you don't know where those bodies came from. They could have been other prophets that God placed in this valley and asked them a question. And they're the ones who answered the question wrong. <laughs> so be very careful what you say next. Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. And so you say, Philip, okay, do we, where are we going to get uh, enough bread to feed everybody? A good answer would have been, oh, Lord, you know. <laughs> but he didn't do that, did he? No, he should have said that. He says, uh, uh, Lord, you know. Okay, so he says, uh, he answered him, 200 denarii, a worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. That's his answer. And Lord, 200 denarii would not be enough for each of them to get a little. You know, I don't need to know how impossible the situation is when I'm believing for a miracle. Do you? <laughs> Think about it. Do you know, there's always somebody who's going to calculate. But Jesus wasn't looking to give everybody a little, was he? He was looking to feed everybody. And, and Philip is trying to figure out how we could get everybody a little. Oh, man, just go with Jesus. Don't mess around figuring it out like Philip. <laughs> what happened was Philip set up this equation, you know? When you're doing math, you set up the equation, then you solve the equation, right? So Philip sets up the equation. He works the math in his head, and he comes to the conclusion that the need was too great. The need is too great. He saw the largeness of the need. But then his brother Andrew chimes in in verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? What are they for so many? See, he worked out his equation, and that led him to conclude that what they had was not enough. So Philip came to the conclusion, the need is too great. And Andrew 
came to the conclusion that what we have is not enough. So they're both just in a bad situation. Philip, the problem is too big. Andrew, all that we have is too small. And Jesus says, have the people sit down. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> I'm going to do something here. You know, sometimes you don't need the people calculating and counting the odds when you're believing God for a miracle. Amen. Sometimes you just need to go on with God and just kind of smile and nod and just thank you for your concern and go and get your miracle. Because if we would have let Philip have his way, they would have had everybody maybe just had a little. Right? But, you know, think about it. What, five loaves and two fish with 5,000 people. Okay, five, five loaves. You're going to take a loaf. I don't care how big that loaf is, and you're going to divide that up among a thousand people per loaf. Think about that. <laughs> Why are you even thinking this? How does that even matter in this scenario? It doesn't. It doesn't. So Jesus is about to do what he's going to do. Verse 10, it says, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place. So the man sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, listen, as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. And then there was still more left over. Verse 12, listen, when they had eaten their fill, you hear it? As much as they wanted, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, go gather the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. He is the God of abundance. Too much is just right for him. It really is. He made more food. I mean, come on, we've come to, you know, we've come to believe him just to meet my needs. But he wants to super abundantly make you able to abound to every good work. That's a lot different than just having your needs met. Yeah. Right? He wants the manual assembly to be able to abound to every good work. That's a lot different than just, you know, making your, your utility payment. Come on, let's abound in him, right? He can do above and beyond what we can ask or imagine. So let's not limit him to what I can ask or imagine. Yes. Right? A Philip could ask or imagine you know, a 200 denarii, that was a stretch for him. That was his limit, 200 denarii. You know, Andrew was like, you know, how can we divide this up? <laughs> when Jesus had something that was super abundantly beyond what they could ask or even imagine. He's the God of abundance, amen? Let's not limit him. Verse 14, when the people saw that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is indeed the prophet. John sets it up and drives it home. Jesus is the prophet. This is Israel's new exodus. And why is this important? This is important for us because this, you know from Psalm 2, Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7, Daniel 7 and other places that when Israel's Messiah comes, he will also be king of the whole world. He'll be the king. His, God's claim on Israel was just an advanced signal of God's claim on the whole world. Amen. And so this is about to, this is a new thing coming. The king of the world, who was a rightful owner of the, of the, the creator and maker of this world, the rightful king of this world, has returned to claim that which is his own. So the Passover, the Exodus, the, the following God into the wilderness, this sets up the conversation that Jesus would have 
in the end of the whole chapter. Now, John is the only one who records this. It's very lengthy. It's very wordy. But I just want to pick, as we get ready to do communion, to take communion together today, I just want to pick out a few things that Jesus said in the remaining chapter of John 6. <clears throat> if you're still in John 6, go down to um, verse 30. So they asked him then, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Okay, Remember, they were following him because of the signs he was doing on the sick. Why are they asking for another sign? But they said, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Then he says, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. See how John is setting this up to show us that this is the new exodus. This is what Jesus is doing. He says, verily, truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus gives us his first of seven I am statements in the book of John. Jesus then declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus gives the very first, I am. I think it's interesting because if Jesus was just trying to convince the Jews, he could have said, see, I gave you bread in the wilderness too. And he had something bigger in mind, didn't he? Because all of the eating physical bread, eating the manna in the wilderness, all that was was, again, it was, a, it was a sign and it was pointing to the reality that we are going to eat of something that is, is, uh, will give us substance, not just for our physical bodies, but for our spirit, for our real man, for who we really are. So the first I am, I am the bread of life, the bread of life, the bread necessary for life. Now skip down to verse 41. Like I said, this is a great conversation. You should read the whole thing and read it with this, this in mind, that, that what we're talking about today, about the Passover and the, and the, the manna in the desert. But uh, I'm just, like I said, cherry picking a few verses. Verse 41, at this, the Jews there begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? Okay, I mean, Jesus is a holy name for us. It was a very common name for them. Jesus? It was like, they could have said, is this not Bob? <laughs> That's what it sounded like to their ear. It's just Bob. Bob. We know Bob. We know his family. We know his brothers and sisters. We know where he came from. It's just Bob. You know, it sounds weird when you say, is, is this not Jesus? Because you know, Jesus is special, right, to us. And rightly so. <laughs> Think about it. Is, is this Bob? <laughs> How can he give us his flesh? How can Bob give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> what is Bob thinking? <laughs> so they begin to argue. They said, they say, yeah, okay, I should read the Bible. I'm making it up now. Okay, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? How can Bob say, I came down from heaven? Then the Jews begin, this is verse 52. Go down 10 verses. The Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves because he says, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me 
and I in them. Now there's a story in 2 Samuel 23. Um, I'll just, I'll just kind of recap it. You remember when David was in the cave of Adullam? Adullam, Adullam, somebody, where's my, where's my Hebrew speakers? Somebody tell me how to say it right. Um, but uh, they were locked down because the Philistine army was there and, and David was there with his like mighty men. And he said, man, I would long to have a drink from that spring, that well over there in Bethlehem. And you remember when three men went out and busted through the ranks of the Philistines and got the water and took it back to their King David so he could drink it. And what did he say? He said, man, I, I'm not going to drink the blood of these men. And he poured the water out. I'm not going to drink. Now he's a Jewish person. They don't drink blood. But what was he saying? I am not going to benefit from them risking their lives. I am not going to drink their blood. In one sense, you can see what Jesus is saying here. Unless you drink my blood, you are going to benefit from what I am doing. You're not going to do it yourself. You're going to benefit from what I do the work that I do on the cross, the life that I live, the sacrifice I make for you. You have got to be, if you do not, if you're not willing to benefit from my work, you have no part in me. And then in the another sense, there is a very real tangibility of the spirit. Okay, a real, see, in the beginning of the book of John, it says what? The word became flesh. Right? And if we go on just a little farther down to verse 63, Jesus kind of explains it. He says, the spirit give life, gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. So what's he talking about? When we feed on Jesus, when we feed on his flesh, if you will, he's the word made flesh. Hearing his words, absorbing his words into our lives is a way that we feed on Jesus. And there is a real tangibility of the spirit. You know, this physical world is governed by physical laws, right? You know, uh, Benjamin discovered the law of gravity the other day, and he came and told me, anywhere I jump, I always come back down. <laughs> he worked it out scientifically, and he discovered that everywhere he jumps, he always comes back down. I was thrilled. I thought, my son is brilliant. Because <laughs> some people don't know that. Because Rinkin was buying a, a, a $60 space pen that will write in zero gravity. I said, why do you want to spend $60 for a space pen? Gravity works everywhere. Even Benjamin knows that. We're not, we're not going to have a time when you need a space pen, unless you're going somewhere I don't know about. But if you know Rinkin, you know she would. She would love to go out of space. So maybe she'll get to. That's becoming more and more common. And if you do, I will buy you a space pen. So you can take notes while you're there. Either that or I'll give you a pencil. But there are laws that govern this world. But there are things in the spirit that are, there. It's, it's not just mush. They're organized in the same type of way. You know, when, when Moses built the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, he had patterned it after the heavenly tabernacle. There was order. There was, a, 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 a you know, the throne and the, the inner court and all that. It was a pattern of what, the spiritual one. Now, the spirit is more real than the physical. It really is. But the spirit is not just disorder and chaos. There are, there's a tangibility. There's a reality in the spirit world. And you and I, because of who God made us, because of your spirit, man, you can partake of these spiritual things in the same way that your physical body can partake of bread. 
your spirit man can partake of the life of Jesus Christ. And you need that because your body is not all there is. You are a spirit. We're running out of time. Let me let me finish this, and and then we're going to receive communion together. Okay, I appreciate it though. Um, Jesus said in verse fifty six, uh, 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 John John six, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And at the end of the book, he says in John fifteen four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So this is just an illustration of what God is saying. He's saying you can live so much in Jesus that the life of Jesus flows through you. Your life flows in and out of him. He flows in and out of you. It's a real living, tangible connection. Amen. And this is just one aspect of what the communion table represents.